In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. As we move 60 years on from the Second Vatican Council, I brought back here my good friend, Father Peter Williams, Vicar General of the Diocese of Parramatta. Welcome back, Father, to the show. Thanks, George. Nice to be back. It's great. And we, we had a great episode on the liturgy itself and there was just so much to discuss there and unpack there on every aspect of the liturgy that we thought you know we have to dedicate this episode to sacred music because that that's that's just a big area in and of itself so looking 60 years after the second vatican council on sacred music and where we've come from and and it's it's just absolutely amazing and uh, you recently had a diocesan conference on liturgy, um, I believe. How did that go? Yes, yes we did. Uh, we had over 90 people at Marion uh, last Saturday, and uh, or Saturday week ago, sorry. And uh, it was a um, very successful day. And in fact, we had one of the workshops was on the subject of uh, sacred music. And that was very <laughs> led by Eric Grella, who's the Assistant Director of Music at the Cathedral here in Parramatta. Mm. Excellent, excellent. And, and it's, it's great to see people participating in bettering their understanding of the liturgy and the different aspects of the liturgy. Because as you mentioned last time, we, we need to educate people. That was one of the practical tools. We need to educate people about these things um, yeah, if we want change. And let's go straight into the topic. Music, where do we start? Where, where was music before the well, Vatican Council? Sure. Well, let's, let's actually go right back because I think we need, in order to understand, I always say to my students at the Catholic Institute of Sydney, in order now to understand why we are where we are at present and where we need to be going, we actually need to go right back. So I want to take you back to the night of the Last Supper. And in the accounts in the gospel, it says that after they had sung the Psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You'll mm -hmm. be familiar with that verse from sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. So we know that we know that that Jesus himself, of course, was exposed to the liturgy of the temple. And the liturgy of the temple obviously included. Uh, chanting in Hebrew, particularly of the Psalms. 
the 150 psalms that make up the Psalter. Mm -hmm. We also know from New Testament evidence that the, the singing of uh, both psalms and other texts were obviously a very early feature of Christian worship. When we look at the New Testament, for instance, particularly the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation to St. John the Divine, we know that there are some texts in Revelation that are hymnic in nature. We also know that in some of Paul's writings, particularly the letter to the Colossians, but also the letter to the Philippians, that there are parts of the texts of those epistles that are hymnic. In other words, biblical scholars would suggest to us that some of that material was probably used in liturgical worship in the very early church. So I guess the point that I'm wanting to say is right from the beginning that the Christian community, when it gathered for liturgy, when it gathered for worship, for the celebration of the Eucharist, even in very primitive times, it would have had sung elements. That's, I think that's a critical point to make that, that um, because many people now, uh, I think sadly, go to a celebration of mass on a Sunday. And while there might be some parts of the mass sung and maybe a couple of hymns or songs, um, clergy now are very reluctant to chant. But there's very clear evidence that from the early church, um, liturgy was not recited in the sense of the spoken voice, but rather it was chanted. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and we see that that tradition lives on in the Eastern church. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you were to be exposed to the Eastern Orthodox churches, particularly the Greek church, the Russian church, all those derivative Orthodox churches, and by default, the churches of that are in communion with the uh, Holy See, that are what we refer to as Eastern churches. If you go to their liturgies, you will see that their liturgies are chanted, they're sung. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's clear evidence that um, that the use of chanting in public worship has been a feature of uh, particularly even the Latin rite um, for centuries. But, and there's always the but, of course, um, <laughs> the but is that um, we then, after, particularly after the Counter-Reformation, after the Council of Trent, uh, when priests, many priests, of course, celebrated uh, a daily mass by themselves at side altars in churches, um, provision was made for what was called a recited mass. Mm -hmm. And a recited mass was a red mass. In other words, there was no chanting, but the priest, with probably the presence of an altar boy, would simply recite what was referred to as a low mass. Um, and the tradition was that there might be one mass on a Sunday 
uh, in a parish that was a missa cantata, a sung mass. Yeah. And in more better resource places like cathedrals and basilicas, there'd probably be what we would refer to as a solemn high mass with the presence of a priest, a deacon and a subdeacon and a whole array of liturgical ministers and probably better resourced with a choir. And depending on what period of history we're talking about, you know, there might be an orchestra or an organ or some other mode of instrumentation. So I think we've got to admit that part of the reason why, at least in the Latin church, we have this custom of recited or said masses um, began really way back in the 16th century. Um, but the tradition prior to the 16th century was a sung tradition, uh, a tradition where there was an extensive use of what we refer to as cantillation by the priest, in other words, chanting. Um, and, and, and the notion that you would recite or say um, a mass was probably foreign to, you know, the medieval church. Mm -hmm. But yeah. became a fact, became a fact after Trent and lived on, of course, after the Second Vatican Council. Mm. Absolutely. So I think we can go back to say, well, you know, um, and, and then going further back, of course, as you know, within the, the Roman tradition in particular, we see the emergence of a particular form of singing. Um, and in fact, you can access some of it online. Some of your, your, um, some of your, 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 um, your viewers might want to do a, a, a search uh, on what we refer to as old Roman chant. Yeah. And old Roman chant was the precursor of what came to be known as Gregorian chant, which was the principal way in which musically the church expressed itself from the 6th, 7th century, all the way through until the early Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And that is unique, unique to the Latin church. That form of singing is unique to the Latin church. And mm -hmm. Old Roman chant um, is, was the original form of chant that was used, um, in, the, uh, was used in the churches of Rome. Exactly. Uh, in, mm -hmm. in yeah. The centuries yeah very interesting it it's sounds very, very it sounds very byzantine there's a lot of droning uh, in old roman chant it sounds somewhat eastern there's a there's an eastern influence on yes it. yes yeah and the reason why that is is because um uh there was an influx uh at various stages throughout um uh, history of course um there was a there was interaction between clergy of the east and the west. Um, there wasn't this it, this strong demarcation that appeared after an, the official break between the church in the east and the west. Sadly, which, as you know, came about, um, and then of course, definitively after the destruction of Constantinople, um, you know, by the. Uh, 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 by the um, the forces that came against it. Um, mm. So, 
it's uh yes there, there was a good interrelationship between the two churches so you would expect that there would be some elements of uh, eastern uh tonality that found its way into the western tradition excellent and why why were we why are we moved in worship to sing in principle do you think father well what is it about saying, singing yeah there's a saying attributed to saint augustine which i don't think really was from saint augustine um was uh, the one who sings praise twice mm -hmm. um and um i think um i think music for most people is takes us out of ourselves and even when you listen to contemporary or modern music you find that music is able to express a whole gamut of feeling of uh of uh degrees of um joy sometimes of sorrow music has the capacity as a, as an instrument to take us beyond ourselves in a spoken way so even people who listen to their favorite music on a streaming service when you ask them even when they listen to contemporary music to say well why do you like that song or why do you like that band uh, what is it that appeals to you and people will say things like well i can really feel that it it sort of it, it you know i find it moves me or you know people will will attribute the fact that music has a capacity as an idiom to penetrate into a person uh, in a way that no other uh, idiom is capable of doing now does that then surprise us if we're wanting to express ourselves in terms of worship of god that we would employ that idiom which is capable of taking us outside of ourselves and exploring if you like the whole gamut of of human emotion yeah that's it's it's absolutely amazing just to think about it and how music clothes the liturgy the liturgical action yeah so let's move on to to, to music so between from the sixth century onwards we had roman chant well, when did yeah. Roman chant develop into Gregorian chant? Well, that happened really over a period of time. Uh, those people who specialise in chant um, uh, would say that over the period of from about the sixth century, from the time of Gregory the Great, to whose name is uh, is affixed, um, you know, the notion of Gregorian chant. Um, probably reached its pinnacle in about the 10th or 11th century. So it was an evolving musical form. Uh, and of course, it was principally expressed within monastic communities in Europe. And of course, the Benedictine order uh, were the great champ champions of chant, both men's and women's orders. So you had monks and nuns who were living in monasteries and convents throughout Europe um, who would be singing the chant to both the divine office, to the Psalms, 
that was sung uh, through the offices of the day, as well as for the celebration of Mass and for other liturgical celebrations. Originally, when you speak to experts on chant, they will tell you that the chant was written down. Most people, when they think about music, think now about a five line um, stave or staff. And uh, of course, in Gregorian chant, it's a four line staff mm -hmm. or stave. And, uh, but previous to that, they were just squiggles on a page mm -hmm. before the invention of a four line um, stave. And, um, and people were able to sing because there were little markings put above the, the Latin text of what was being sung to indicate whether you lifted your voice in pitch or you lowered your voice in pitch. Yeah. So it's an extraordinarily interesting study. And there are people who've spent, you know, their lifetime studying Gregorian chant from its earliest form uh, right to its high point. And the invention of the stave or the musical staff of four lines and the development of what we refer to as neumes, that is the notation that accompanies Gregorian chant, uh, made it much easier to sing. And I would still say now that it's easier to sing Gregorian chant in terms of following the notation mm -hmm. than it is singing a modern five-stave um, uh, musical notation. Excellent, excellent. And, and most, people, most, most people in music would, would say that, would say it's actually easier to follow than uh, modern notation. Gregorian chant. And then fast forward to the 16th century, the, the, the concept of a red mass or a low mass uh, developed. Do, do we know why uh, we had we created this option to just say the low mass with no singing? Yeah, sure. So we've got to go back now, jump back a bit, a few centuries mm -hmm. to the beginning of what we say is the age of polyphony. That mm -hmm. is the adding of second, third, and fourth voices that began in around about the 12th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Examples of very early polyphony that you can listen to, um, again, people can access online, would be the music of somebody like Hildegard of Bingen, yeah. uh, who's an outstanding uh, religious woman uh, of the early Middle Ages, and she also was a composer. Um, but we begin to see the development of what we call polyphony that reached its high point in the 16th century uh, with, uh, with <coughs> the... The wonderful music that was written uh, by uh, Palestrina and uh, Vittoria. And so that complemented the chant. So what we had in the post-Reformation church um, was still the singing of chant, but we also had all these wonderful polyphonic mass settings and uh, motets that were written in that period to help enhance the liturgy. But, of course, as we discovered today, that requires resources. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that not everybody could resource acquire, uh, could have the musical resources to be able 
to perform this music liturgically. So the bigger cathedrals, the bigger monasteries, the bigger abbeys, the bigger basilicas um, that may well have had benefactors might have been in a position to be able to resource music in this way. But your average village parish church um, didn't have that resourcing. And, and so with the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, uh, of the, uh, sorry, of the Council of Trent, okay. um, uh, priests would have to rely on what they had. And in ordinary parishes, it reverted back to a, what we call a read or recited mass. Mm. And um, <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's so if we actually, uh, if we were to fast, tra fa uh, uh, if we were to be thrown into the 12th century, 16th century, into an ordinary parish church, we wouldn't have we we would have all uh, seen uh, parish choir singing. No, no, no. Um, when you think about the villages um, across Europe at yeah, that yeah. time, uh, that just that simply wouldn't have been the case. You might have had some people who might have had some interest in singing, but I think we've got to be honest to say that the music tradition of the church has was carried by the monastic communities exactly and the larger basilicas cathedrals and abbeys who had the resources to be able to maintain and build the tradition and also the education as well because yes they had to yes. know the latin to be able to yeah. sing it properly yeah and so they were the yeah so exactly they were the ones carrying it through um carrying it through and preserving it and uh, yeah, I I can just imagine. Uh, I can just imagine yeah. the, the the large numbers of uh, monks or nuns singing Gregorian chant in with yeah. that sandstone. Uh, yeah, and it and of course it was it was a glorious time. Yeah, and um, but I think we've got to be honest to say, well, while we had these marvelous centers of excellence and musical brilliance across Catholic Europe, um. It didn't actually drip down, if you like to use that phrase, into the into the ordinary village parishes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So let's now move. So we move beyond the 16th century now into, yeah, yeah, sure. into well then towards well, the then, Vatican Council. Yeah. Well, before we get there, unfortunately, mm -hmm. George, we've got to jump through <laughs> both the 18th century and the 19th century because they're very telling for yes. us. Yes, I can't, um, I can't jump across them. Very yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. now we're entering into the time of the music of um, people like um, Haydn and Mozart, who yeah. wrote enormous amount of music for the church, and what is known musically as the classical period. Now, again, if you were in a place like Salzburg or another big European city at that time, Chances were that if you went to one of the big major churches, cathedrals or abbeys, that for the solemn high mass on a Sunday morning, you might be treated to the music of Joseph Haydn with an orchestra and a choir. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what extensively happened 
was that they would sing a setting of the mass from beginning to end, whilst in the background, the mass was being celebrated. And the reason why a lot of that music that was written in the 18th century is not necessarily suitable for liturgical use today was because it was composed with a view that the music would be sung while the mass was being said. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and I'll just, I just remember, I just uh, remember, you know, uh, uh, my Sunday masses at the Latin mass and, um, and the, uh, the singing happening over while the priest reads the introit, they're singing yep. the Kyrie. I can just imagine. Yeah. Would have worked with more bigger pieces of music. So yeah. 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 And that's, that's in fact what happened uh, in, in those bigger places in Europe. Now, remember, we're talking about the big churches and cathedrals. We're not talking about your average parish church. Yep. Where uh, if there was any singing, it might have been done by um, a, a religious community that was attached to the parish. Uh, but there was no expectation that the people themselves would sing. So there was never any expectation that people who were going to Mass would sing, that singing was the preserve of the choir, not the people. Now, in the 19th century, it got even more bizarre because in the 19th century, we have a tendency for church music that was being written at that time to almost mimic what was going on in the opera houses of Europe. Yeah. So we get all these settings of the mass that basically replicate the operatic form. Um, and um, the response to that, interestingly, came from at the beginning of the 20th century by Pope Pius X, who published what's called a motu proprio, which is a document that a Pope can issue, uh, called Trali Solicitudini, in which he addressed the issue of people's participation in the mass. And what people, many people don't know is that the phrase that was used in section 14 of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy from Second Vatican Council, the phrase often quoted about the full conscious and active participation of the people that we've mm -hmm. spoken on in your previous session, that phrase was not original to the Second Vatican Council, but that phrase was a phrase of Pius X. Now, what was he on about? Well, what he wanted was for people to learn to sing the chants of the ordinary of the Mass. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by the ordinary of the Mass is I mean the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Onus Day. Mm -hmm. What Pius X was calling for when he said he wanted conscious and full participation was he wanted ordinary Catholic folk to learn 
what we refer to as the chant masses. Mm -hmm. And he wanted them to be able to sing the chant masses at the Latin mass. That's what he wanted. Hmm. Because I think he could see what had happened in the 19th century was serving nobody except, um, you know, um, underemployed opera singers in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and it became too too much of a... Did it become too much of a theatrical performance? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. And happily, almost all that repertoire has been consigned to the bin of history. Because mm -hmm. a lot of it musically was very poor. Um, but that was the trend. Um, and, and we have Pius X to thank for encouraging people to return back to the simplicity of the Gregorian chant masses. Exactly, exactly. And that is why, George, you'll find that older Catholics in this country who lived in the pre-Vatican II church, many of them will know, for instance, the mass that we refer to, the chant mass we refer to as the Missa de Angelus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it had quite common currency for ordinary Catholics. And that's as a result of what Pius X did. Oh, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. And yeah. and and so but was Gregorian chant ever declared as the as the as the official music, uh, liturgical music of the Roman Rite prior to the Second yes. Vatican Council? Yes. Yes, it was, uh, because uh, we used to talk about music as being sacred and profane. Mm -hmm. um, and there was music that was designated sacred, and Gregorian chant was designated as being sacred music that is suitable for use liturgically. Mm -hmm. Along with that, of course, they also added the great treachery of polyphony that came out of the 16th century that I was talking to you about earlier. So the music of Palestrina and Vittorio and so on. Um, but the pride of place had always been given to the chant. And the reason why is because much of the chant, not all of it, but much of the chant is easily accessible. And particularly if you think about the chant masses, like the Missa de Angelus or the Mass Orbis Factor and so mm -hmm. on, it, people could learn those mass settings and could learn how to sing them. Now, the proper of the Mass, the introit, the gradual, the offertory, the communion, and so on, they were very complicated, often pieces of chant, which mm. could really only be sung realistically by a trained group of singers. Mm -hmm. but, um, you could have ordinary people in the pews learning how to sing a chant mass. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. So, how did Gregorian chant develop? Do we have any understanding how it was written? Did it grow organic? Uh, did, did it develop organic? I was saying grow. Oh organic. yes, it developed. It developed organically, and I think it probably reached its peak form somewhere around about the eleventh or twelfth century. So we're looking at at. Old Roman chant from about fifth, sixth century 
became Gregorian chant and then developed over a period of four or five centuries, I think reaching its zenith in about the 12th century in what we refer to. Was it developed in monasteries or do we know? Yeah, yeah, in monasteries. No, the monasteries were, you know, that was the place. Excellent. So it had a great origin in the context of prayer, in the context of solitude that he's developed. And monks, monks would devote themselves, you know, to the study of chant and to the writing out of uh, liturgical books in which the chant would be notated. And you've all seen those, you've seen copies of illuminated manuscripts out of monastic libraries of that period, highly yeah. ornate, beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah, if, if you go to London, there's, uh, you go to the UK or many other places in Rome, you can see uh, may, uh, a lot of notation, Gregorian notation. Yes. And, and, and let's talk about polyphony. What is polyphony? Yes. So we have Gregorian chant, we have polyphony. Yeah. Well, as I was saying, so to easily explain it to people, is some of your audience who might not necessarily be musicians, um, uh, Gregorian chant operates on one single line of melody. But polyphony is when you then add other voices at another pitch from Mm -hmm. the original melody. And the original form of polyphony was what we call two voices or two lines. And earlier on in our session, you talked to me about a drone, Mm -hmm. about the use of the drone, which is often a... Uh, one note that underpins the melody. So you've got a drone note at the bottom, if you like, being sung by the basses, and then you've got a melody that's being sung over the one note. Mm -hmm. That is the beginning of what we would say is polyphony. And then finally, people began to understand the science of what we call harmony. What happens when you pitch one note above another at a particular musical interval? creates a harmony then you can add a third voice on top of that and then a fourth voice on top of that and then ultimately what you get is four voices singing in harmony with normally the upper voice maintaining the melody and the other voices are adding to the richness of the melody by providing harmony underneath it but it doesn't stop at four voice at four voices because of course you can write for five voices or six voices. Mm-hmm. And the most famous motet that came out of that period was written by an English composer called Thomas Tellus, mm-hmm. who wrote a 40-part motet called Spem in Allen, wow. where you had 40 voices. Um, now, if 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 you want to hear polyphony if it's zenith then i would say to your audience they need to find a recording of spem in allium uh, by thomas tallis and listen to it um it's certainly available uh, online um so they could get an experience of what polyphony at its at its highest form sounds like exactly that's about the 18th not uh 19th, 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah. And 
let's let's look at, are we ready to go to the second vatican council yeah yeah we are we can get there now that's fine let's go there um okay. so the the constitution on the sacred liturgy had some paragraphs pertaining to uh sacred music and it said a number of things one of the things was that uh gregorian chant uh, had pride of place in uh, in the Latin rite, in the Roman rite. It also commended the uh, use of polyphony. It commended the use of pipe organs. And it also commended that uh, choirs should be actively encouraged and maintained. It also said, interestingly enough, that um, that uh, popular religious songs uh, could also find their way into uh, use in the church. So it was giving a nod and a wink, I suppose you might say, particularly to religious songs that have developed over the centuries that are particular to a particular culture. So what happened? Well, here's what happened. Because it seems that it doesn't seem that the Second Vatican Council invented much in Sacrosanct and Concilium, especially with regard to sacred music, apart from uh -huh. the addition of new songs. Yeah. It, it seems that it's in continuity with what's been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But let me so, explain you what, why, why I think in some ways it's sort of. What do you, let's define what is the issue today with sacred music in, par in the ordinary parish life. Well, the yeah, issue today, well, firstly, rendering the liturgy in the vernacular meant that immediately you basically uh, required an entirely new repertoire mm. because yeah. chant and polyphony is in Latin. Yeah. So there have been a number i think of quite successful attempts to render chant in english and other vernacular languages uh, but that project took some time and so when when congregations of catholics started worshiping in vernacular languages they basically didn't have anything to sing uh, because um, there was nothing written in that vernacular <clears throat> language so uh, composers uh, began to write music and happily in Australia, we had some very competent, liturgically minded musicians who wrote a whole body of very good liturgical music in English. But regrettably, what happened in the 1970s was that we got overrun by what was happening in the United States of America. And in the United States of America, um, this was a period of what we call the folk music era, where people, uh, where there was a genre of contemporary modern music with people playing acoustic six string guitars with a single voice singing songs. Mm -hmm. and and many people in the church in the United States of America thought, why don't we just take this music over into the church? Mm -hmm. 
And that was why we began to see the appearance of people playing guitars in churches, yeah. which had been unknown of before, but it was filling a gap. Um, it was filling a gap. And, and the, 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 the introduction of contemporary musical forms into the liturgy of the church, uh, while at one level, some people would argue that it was very pastorally successful engaging people, what it ended up doing, of course, was completely and utterly upending the whole tradition of the singing of chant basically disappeared overnight and except for places where choirs were maintained um, the singing of Gregorian chant ostensibly disappeared what were the spiritual implications of that um, that's a very good question George the answer to that is I actually think I don't know um, mm. to be with you um neither do i uh i i think the jury is still out on that um but i think what it did do was that it's led to an impoverishment of access of people being able to access the tradition of the church over hundreds and hundreds of years there is an example of course that um, many people don't know it but in Australia in particular, when people sing the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father at Mass, they're, of course, singing chant, even if they don't realise that they're doing it. And in many instances, <clears throat> you'll often find that that's the best sung piece in the whole liturgy. <laughs> it's when people yeah. sing the Our Father. <laughs> that is, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the question is, what do we do? Um, now I don't want to tip a complete bucket load. Um, I think some of the early contemporary music that was written for the church was, was, um, not worthy of, uh, liturgical music. And happily, a lot of that very early music that was written in the late sixties and seventies has disappeared. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful it's gone. So it was just the cultural situation where people were just bringing what they felt like into the church. Yeah. Yeah. They had a bad week at work, so they thought, you know, we'll sing Kumbaya, my Lord, and, yeah. <laughs> and all those other yeah. contemporary yeah. songs. Or, yeah. you know, I, I've heard secular music sung in church in weddings even, you know. So they, yeah. they, they just brought it into the church. and but, but luckily it's all, a lot of it has phased out. Uh, at the moment yes yes it, a lot of it's gone and then during the period of the 1990s we had a more sophisticated contemporary music emerge largely out of the united states of america um that i refer to as the broadway sondheim school yeah <laughs> uh, which was a lot more sophisticated and musically better written than the material that came out of the late 60s, 70s. But it was still, it was still of a genre that you would say, has this particular form of musical genre, does it have a place within 
the liturgical celebrations of the church. Now, some people would argue that the liturgy must enculturate, like it must embed itself in a culture. And that is true. Um, and some of that music, I think, actually has worth and value. Although I think from a congregational point of view, it's very difficult to sing because a lot of it has very complicated rhythmic patterns in it. So it's not all that easy for a, a, a group of people to sing it. So I think... also, sorry, should we also think about whether or not uh, to discern a piece of music, should we be thinking has this developed organically from organic? So, uh, like, because when, when we look at Gregorian chant, I mean, it seems to be it's something that developed in the monasteries. Uh, over time, it was refined, it was used. Yeah. Um, and the fact it's dead music that isn't sung in a pub or a club uh, yeah. or out in the secular means that it has its own unique identity for the liturgy. Yes, yes. I think that's the, yes. that's what mo a lot of young people today argue who uh, attend, you know, cathedrals and uh, yeah. traditional Latin masses and ordinariate masses and yeah. the, the more traditional. That That's their argument, that if we yeah. have something that we've received, why don't we just stick to it? Yeah. Well, indeed, uh, I think I think largely, I think we we are now beginning to recapture uh, uh, happily. We're recapturing a lot of music that apparently appeared to be lost. Um, but again, you see, you've then got to look at um, once a culture becomes embedded uh, in a worship community, it's very difficult to change it. So the fact of the matter is that we've got suburban parishes that live entirely on a diet of uh, contemporary music that was written post-1980 and they know nothing of the tradition. And part of the issue that we're faced with is that, uh, again, and it comes back to that a point I was making to you much earlier, about previous centuries. It just depends on how serious the church wants to be in resourcing the music because you can't do chant and you can't do polyphony unless you're resourced to do it and you've got people who are trained in knowing what they're doing. If you're relying on amateur musicians in suburban parish churches, who've had some very basic training in, 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 in music, um, uh, they're not equipped to be able to do the music that comes from the tradition. So it just depends on how serious those who are in decision-making positions are in terms of saying, we need to resource people better to be able to tap into the tradition. Um, obviously, you're not going to get ordinary suburban parish churches singing polyphony, and I wouldn't expect that. But we should be able to equip the people in our suburban parishes to sing chant. And that's not too big a ask. In exactly. Or, some, or, or Gregorian chants, such as a Missa de Angelus or Orbis Factor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. that isn't too much out of reach. No, 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 it's not. No, it's not. And um, people with patience, 
can learn to be able to sing those simple chant settings. And I think it would make a big difference to their experience of a liturgical celebration. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So we've got a lot, of, again, as I said to you on the previous uh, previous um, uh, session, uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. And it also means that we need to invest in training uh, our younger musicians uh, to know how to sing and teach the music. Exactly. And I'm happy to say that there are lots and lots and lots of young people who have a, a great interest in this musical tradition and are interested in beginning to know it and to know how to sing it and um, hopefully to be able to teach it to others. I, I think we can be optimistic. I have uh, I, I speak to these people uh, week in week out who are um, who are actually creating great initiatives uh, to to go to path. There is there's one initiative um, that. Uh, uh, that that's actually out there where they go around and they give workshops to parishes and yeah. their choirs. There's also yeah. the great initiative of Parramatta sending um, uh, the assistant director of music out to the different parishes. Yeah, yeah well, that's them. all beginning yeah. to happen. All beginning to happen. And it's good news. And, um, for instance, in the, um, in the Catholic Worship Book number two, uh, which was published a few years ago, which is the official uh, uh, church music resource in Australia. And I was the chairman of the uh, editorial panel and the chairman of the National Liturgical Music Board for a number of years. Uh, we have a lot of chant in Catholic Worship Book Two, a lot. And we did that deliberately because we need to be able to make this available to people to be able to sing excellent excellent uh, and also i just want to mention all these little initiatives of people who uh, are just getting together and learning how to sing online uh, as yeah. well they're learning it online and uh, i know many people in their parishes starting to have one or two or three people to start yeah. to want to sing some sacred music and several choirs are popping up as well um, I know my wife sings in a choir, uh, the choir of Benedict XVI. Uh, they sing for the Latin Mass, and they've sung before it in an ordinary parish in the Archdiocese of Sydney. Uh, there are th there's a lot of initiative going on. There's a lot of interest uh, from young people and and all sorts of people to want to sing. So I think we can be optimistic. But to further this change, let's go into the three practical tools. Because this is probably the most important part of the discussion is what can we do to propel this change forward so that we can see not only just somebody who walks into the Diocese of Parramatta and sees, okay, well, St. Patrick's Cathedral sets the standard for the music. And we also have the Latin Mass chaplaincy who says it and maybe one other parish. But we want to see a variety of parishes growing in there sacred music and eventually to all the parishes and yeah. so what can we do what practically can we do well believe it or not the roman missal has within it a setting of simple chants for the mass that mm -hmm. we put in there when we were doing the missal and the first practical thing we can do 
is to get people to become familiar with the chance setting that is actually in the missile for the order of mass. Because it's printed there. It's a mixture of uh, mass 18 and mass 15 um, uh, the, of the chart masses yep. in England. Very easily learned, and many people already know those settings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's a very practical thing to do. Uh, the second practical thing that we can do is to encourage the use of the gospel acclamation to one of the Gregorian chants. Now, most people yeah. are used to yeah. what we call uh, uh, tone six, hmm. which is yeah. the Easter, um, the Easter Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia. Mm -hmm. Well, there are other ones that are just as simple. And so a second practical thing that we can do is to say, let's start singing the gospel acclamation to those simple Gregorian tones. That's, that's the second thing that we can do. The third practical thing that we can do is that if you know somebody who's got a good voice, then you could encourage them to act as a cantor in a parish to lead the singing and get familiar with leading people in singing parts of the chant. I don't suggest that you do it all at once, but that you incrementally introduce the chant so that over time people become familiar with the chant. And what you'll find is that once they become familiar with the chant, their tolerance of music that isn't of the same quality will diminish. <laughs> <laughs> and people pick it up. People, yeah. even young children as well, people yeah. pick up these. Uh, yeah. you know just these small little changes make a difference yes. yeah they do yeah, they do. yeah i think it's so important the third practical tool is very important that there's so many people out there friends that we have within each parish that can actually have great voices and can sing and yeah. and encouraging people to get involved because we don't actually do we need a minimum of people or just one person to get started yeah. Uh, for yeah. singing we can just start with one person right yeah and then yeah. also if we wanted to start a little choir you could start it with two people or three people um that could sing you know some gregorian chant at the back of the church or yeah. the front or yeah. wherever it is in the loft yeah. um so so it, it's it doesn't really take uh, you know uh, 40 people or, or no. 25 people no, no. absolutely not so there are little small things that we can do to actually gradually implement what the council had hoped for mm -hmm. in terms of people being able to maintain the tradition. And over time, it will build. And there are three very practical little things that can be done. Now, I just want to touch quickly before we end on the role of the parish priest as the leader and instigator in all this. Yeah. Uh, what, what what can the parish priests who are listening, what can they do to take well, action, to, to initiate this? Because often it, it's a, a, a parish priest who understands and values the Gregorian chant as a prior place in the Roman Rite and other yeah. sacred music can really propel things forward. Uh, but yeah. what can they do? 
from the from what can the, they do? Well, I think I think it's a generational thing. I think you'll find that clergy have been trained in about the last fifteen to twenty years have had instilled in them uh, a love of and exposure to chant. Um, that generation of clergy who were trained in the 1970s and 80s had no such exposure. So they're going to be a bit difficult to persuade. But certainly the last 20 years, we've got a cohort of clergy now who were very well trained in chant and get it. And they're going to be a lot more amenable for the chant to be introduced than clergy who were probably trained in the 70s and 80s who've had no exposure uh, because it just wasn't part of their formation. Exactly. So I think, I think, again, we will find that as the generations go, uh, the young men who are now being trained are all being trained in the area of chant. Exactly. So and it's, that, it's that, a that, parallel yeah. with the laity who are now interested yeah. in the chant. Yeah, it's, and that will that will continue. That will continue, George. Yeah. So it'll build. It'll build. So I'm feeling quite optimistic about it. Yeah, well, I am quite also. Optimistic. Yeah, but yeah. the parish priest can encourage people and say, "Look, why don't we start yeah. a? Why don't we start singing?" Uh, if there's an yeah, existing choir of three, four, five people, could, yeah. could they take the step and say, "Well, uh, can we uh, let's start let's start adding uh, some Gregorian chant or some yeah, simple tones?" Absolutely, because yeah. I think you would find that most clergy are very keen to have anybody who will offer in music at all. Mm -hmm. And I think if you had four or five people came together and said, "Look, we'd like to form a little scholar yeah. and start singing." English chant masses, um, I, I, most parish priests would, would be very happy to have that. So I think you'll find that would be very well received. Yeah. Excellent. So moral of uh, today's, uh, today's discussion yeah. is uh, find yeah. one, two or three people. You can even start with one or two. Or yeah. three, start your own little choir, yeah. uh, learn yeah. the chants, go online, uh, yeah. contact different organisations and you can start it and and start singing for that for these masses. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, yeah. Yep. It's 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 a quick. It, it really it's not going to take forty people. It's just a few people. You can start a scholar and we we can yep. get started. Excellent, yep. Father. Uh, what's your Good. final words of encouragement for our listeners here today? Well, uh, my final word would be um, if you don't know about the tradition, uh, search it out online. Uh, listen to the way that the church has sung mm -hmm. in the past uh, because it helps inform us the way that we should be singing into the future. Excellent. Uh, if you can leave us uh, with your blessing, Father, and the show. Yes. yes, thank you, George. Let us pray that we be aided by the prayers of all the saints and especially of our Blessed Mother, and may Almighty God bless us all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast at the Catholic Toolbox, wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week, I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. 
That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith, to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our model world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.